1: Friends and listeners, welcome to episode number fourteen of season eight of the South Hermes Podcast. My name is Rudolf, I am your host, and today is Sunday, May 29. Welcome to this new episode in which I have the pleasure to welcome Wolf Dieter Storl, German ethno botanic researcher with a big background in Love and Closeness to nature, maybe a less esoteric talk today than usual, but he has also just published his part biography because it's only the part of his life. He's talking about which he passed in America and how the contact with nature there, with Native Americans, etc., made him the man that he is today—a man who has published a lot of books. So I'm not going to tell you more about that, more in the intro, the interview, but a very special interview with uh, Wolf-Dieter Stroll. Right, and uh, it's my pleasure to welcome you all here in the new episode. And if you are returning customers, that's great. It's perfect to have you back again. It's great that so many of you are coming back each week to listen to this show. And for those of you who are here for the first time, welcome. It's a great pleasure to have you here. Stay with us for as long as you like. And if you missed all those over 120 episodes that have been produced so far just go on the website thoshermes.com that's t h o t h e r m e s.com and you will find them all including the show notes and i'm stressing that every week the show notes are really important part of this show, of this um podcast because there you have a lot of supplementary information and many links also to uh those places that you would like to look up in order to get more information about the people we have as guests here. The show notes themselves, the little article that goes with them, are a bit shorter these weeks because, uh, um, well, I'm usually very much helped by my friend Ursula to do them, but she is uh, at the moment not available and will be back in about two weeks or so. And until then, bear with me, I just do not have the time to do those lengthy articles that she does so brilliantly right um what else is there to say well you know um that this podcast is supported by you the audience by listeners like you and thanks to all of you who do that who are supporters who financially support this show which makes it only possible and uh uh, once again, I have to say, well, please become more of you because it's necessary. Soon, I have to say, I will start a pledge, a pledge here now for and an, I need a new workhorse, a new workhorse uh, computer here uh, at uh, some time later in the year, and I will need you to support that to be able to finance it. But I will be more precise about that in a week or two. But for the time being, if you want to become a patron, please do. It's great that so many of you well Not so many, actually, but that some of you are part of that, and it would be great if many more of you would do that. It is on patreon.com. You look for the Sauce Hermes podcast, and you will find us there. Or, of course, on the website, on the website where you go on the first page, on the homepage, and you find the donation button for one-off donations, And you will find the Patreon link to become a supporter, a regular supporter of this show. Um, I also would like to remind you of Kaikobad Radio, which still has not really got its website, but Kaikobad Radio, which is the 24-7 radio internet station that I have created a month ago, which features every week two eight-hour loops of program, interesting program with podcasting's podcasts from colleagues of mine friends of mine who do great jobs i uh, just name a few it's Saperi audes their occult of personality glitch bottle and many others so just go there and listen whenever you have time 24 7 you just turn on tune in to the radio that's radio.kaikobad.com kaikobad spells k-e-i-k-o-b-a-d but if you didn't have a piece of paper to write it down, just go on the Thos Hermes website and you will have on the top of the page a link to the radio station there. Um, It's really working very well. I'm very happy with the software and everything. It's technically perfect. I just need to do more publicity work and that's part of it what I'm doing here now. If you were there, if you like what you heard, please tell your friends, give them the link and if you want to post a link for Kaikobad Radio, on your website uh, or also a player if you want on your website do let me know and i will send you the 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 code for the player to be installed right there on your own web page okay let's play some music Uh, um very eclectic this time again well because the middle piece the piece in the break of the of the interview that is a very particular piece which i chose which came up during the talk that I had with Wolf-Dieter Stroll, um, that will be very classical, ancient music, actually, Um, for a particular reason I don't want to give away. You will hear it in the interview. Why? Um, And now, of course, because his work, uh, Wolf-Dieter Stroll's work, is very much linked to nature, also to native people, etc., I've decided to open this music program here with... uh, powerful native american chant a couple chanting there i to be honest can't even give you the name of the chant exactly but it i really liked it i i do think it is uh, original Uh, i'm of course not a specialist of that and hope uh, that is the case if not it's it's just beautiful music right and i hope you will like it and uh, we'll start right away with that with that native american chant To open the talk, um, to open the show, and uh, I only can tell you, enjoy. Wonderful and powerful music, which I believe is a perfect lead over to the interview we're going to have with Wolf Dieter Stoll, who is my guest here on the show today. Well, Wolf Dieter Stoll, I don't know if you um, US listeners or North American listeners do know him that well. He is really a famous man over here in Europe, especially in the German-speaking countries, and um, I will also point you to his website so you can find more about him. Um, he is an ethno-bothanic. He is an anthropologist of for culture, for cultural anthropologist. I think you, you named that in proper English. Um, he has written many, many books in uh, German language, but also in more and more now in English. And one of his... Um, is a biography where he talks to to, to us about his past as a young person when he lived in the United States with his parents who moved there. Um, He is 80 years old now this year, and so it was shortly after World War II that they moved with him over there. He was a kid, and he learned most of what he became later on, he says, in the United States. That book is called Far Out in America and um, talks about that time. A really interesting book um, I think you should read if you're interested in nature, preserving nature. And um, as I said already in the intro, maybe this interview today is a little less esoteric than usual because Wolf is not a practitioner of any occult group or whatever you name it, but of course, the work he does is very, through his closeness to nature, and he really lives that, is very, to me, very esoteric as well, because it's a certain type of esotericism that we don't talk about a lot here on this show, but which is, to me, highly important. Um, I'm also planning to do a kind of series on on uh, magical activism. Let's put it that way. So, And maybe this is a kind of a starter, even there's not so much of what we call magic in it, but uh, the way that wolf handles things is quite magic. Well, I'm not going to tell you more. you got to discover him yourself. He's a great man, very interesting man, and I'm very happy that uh, I could have him on the show, which was quite a treat for me, and I hope for all of you as well. Okay, so, without further ado, I think uh, we should go and meet wolf Stroll in his native Germany, where he lives again now, well, has been living for quite some time again now, um, which is American Wife, actually. And you will hear that he speaks an excellent, excellent English. And um, we are going to meet again in the break after about 34, 35 minutes. We do a little musical break and that will be the moment when I will play for you something completely different musically than what we just heard in the beginning. Um, I don't give it away now because uh, it's kind of developed out of the interview, what we are going to hear there in the interval. So stay tuned, stay with us, uh, and look forward to the interview with Wolf-Dieter Storl. Here comes the interview. Today, I have a very, very special guest here on the Thought Hermes podcast, special in two ways, because um, he is a great man um, uh, of ethnobotanics and of many other things. And we're going to talk about all of that in a very, very short time in a few minutes here. But um, uh, it, he's, it's a great moment because we extend once again in the Thoughts Hermes podcast our views on the world, not being just limited to Selima uh, and hermeticism, etc., but really go into other fields. But the other great moment is because he is a very, very well known uh, German personality, I may say. Wolf Dieter Stoll is here with us here today and uh, Wolf, as I may call you, it's my great pleasure to have you here with us on the South Hermes podcast. Thank you for giving us your time.
2: Yeah, great to be here.
1: Well the occasion actually the actual occasion why we meet here uh, is that you just released your I would call it the biography of your early years is that a, is that a good name for it in yeah, in, in, in English say. yeah mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. well i had written it in german because uh, right somebody asked me uh, well your college years and so on must have been a typical boring uh, time you know, just, uh, yeah, you know, the student life. And I said, no, it was something, uh, very special. It was, uh, the time of the sixties, uh, the flower children and the hippies and, uh, student riots and so on. And I was right in the midst of it. And I came from a small town in Ohio, uh, near Lake Erie as a rural town. And I had, I had no conception of, uh, urban life. And it was a double culture shock to go to, uh, uh, Columbus Ohio that was the you know, it's the capital of uh, Ohio and suddenly mm-hmm. I emerged in a world uh, just totally like a fool or blue-eyed as one would say
1: mm-hmm. and uh, that's what I wrote about You're right you were i believe 11 years old when your parents and you moved from eastern germany what it was then um, to mm-hmm. to to north america right
2: it wasn't eastern germany it was uh, I lived in Oldenburg in the uh, British uh, zone, but ah, okay. uh, I was born in in East uh, Germany and um, 1942 is a long time ago. <laughs> and uh, American troops uh, uh, liberated uh, uh, the that part of uh, Germany and Saxony. Mm-hmm. And um, so first contact with Americans was... There uh, yeah, were American troops, and one fellow named James, he uh, had an eye on my mother's sister, and he came visited us, and it was a time where there, where there wasn't much... Um, food. Uh, we were starving practically and uh, he always brought us food and had his parents from Chicago send care packets. And I remember him playing a funny game. It was a, a, a ball. It was the shape of an egg and he threw it at me, and he said, hut, hut, hut. And years later, I realized it was American football. (laughs) Sure, yeah. And then one day he came and he said, I have bad news for you, we're moving out, and the uh, Soviets are coming in. Mm. And uh, then the uh, Russians came in, and they were basically as hungry as we were, and it was a very difficult situation. At that time, my father was released from a British prisoner of war camp in in a desert in Egypt, and uh, he was afraid to go back uh, to his hometown because the uh, Soviets were there. And uh, so, I got, my mother and I got into a freight train and we went about a whole day in this freight train. It was full of people fleeing. Uh, and yeah, I remember in one corner, there was uh, a man laying on the straw coughing and my mother said, don't go near him. He has tuberculosis. And then near the early um, guns. Very early in the morning, it was uh, before sunrise, we got out of the train and we crawled in a ditch, it was all wet, it was uh, dew. And then uh, we made our way uh, through some barbed wire and I remember that because I had to go to the toilet real bad and my mother said, not now, not now, come on. I said, but I have to. Okay, uh, do you have to go big or or small? He said, big. And uh, (laughs) so that was my last gift to the (laughs) Soviet zone of occupation and we made it across and I saw Saw all these uh, bombed-out cities, uh, you know, as a kid, uh, very new. And then I met my father for the first time. It was one month before I turned five years old. Wow! Yeah. And so we spent in, uh, seven years in this north northern German town, uh, the food situation was better, but it was still, um, it was crowded with refugees. It was a town that had not been bombed in the war because the British Secret Service was uh, located there and they didn't want to kill their own people. So there were 40,000, between 40 and 50,000 refugees there, Uh, mostly women and kids. Uh, Men were in, uh, either they had been killed or or they were in uh, um, in prisoner of war camps, and all we kids did is uh, play war, and that's how we got rid of the traumatization. Sure, yeah, And yeah, We threw, yeah, yeah. you know, we fired rocks at each other, and sometimes, uh, you know, I'd get hit and be bloody, and yeah. uh, and so on. I mean, that's that's kind of how I grew up. It was a difficult time. One time, I was in in these huge gangs of children. I was hit by a rock right in the middle of the head and started bleeding, and I thought, oh, well, I'll go. Uh, I, I'm i tired anyway. I'm going home. And on the way home, I went, we, we lived in, uh, the house was full of refugees. I crawled up uh, on all fours, pretending to be a horse, and an aunt of mine, where we lived, opened the door and saw me crawling with uh, bloody wound in the head, and she fainted. Oh, my God. So, uh, and I realized later she fainted. It was kind of a, a traumatization for her because her only son had been killed on the last day of the war. He had not worn his helmet, and he was shot uh, directly uh, in the forehead. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. it was like, uh, and... So I was basically a little shaman at the time, (laughs) uh, bringing this to the fore once again. Right. But that's, and then coming to America, I was, uh, yeah, I was 11 years old. And the opulence of uh, the, I mean, it just overwhelmed us, you know. We, sure. there were no fences. We kids in Maslin, Ohio, that was. And we kids played, and when we were hungry, we'd just go into any house. That's how it was. And a refrigerator, there weren't even refrigerators in Europe at the time, it was so. Yeah. Old so full, uh, and you could just pick what you wanted. And there were always popsicles, for example, too. Mm -hmm. And it was uh, compared to uh, the dearth or the starvation in Europe that was, uh, yeah, that was uh, like coming into paradise, into the <laughs> yeah. land of cocaine or Schlaraffenland, as one Absolutely, says.
1: Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah.
1: Well, this biography, it's the English version, I think, came out last year, right in 2020. Right. right. And it's called Far Out in America. Um, something happened then uh, rather soon, if I get it from your book, that um, Changed your life into what it became later. So you made that you made that new contact with nature at some point, right? Uh, you, I, I yeah. don't want to say discover. You, you find probably the better word. What what happened to you that got you into contact with nature in in a special way?
2: Well, the thing was actually I lost contact uh, during that time. Okay. Uh, in Ohio, uh, we moved to a very small town near Lake Erie, and. Our, I spend most of my time in nature, uh, climbing trees. Something I had done as a kid already in Europe. And uh, what what happened is uh, when I first arrived in the small town of Spencer, I mm, yeah, kids t- well, took me to baseball playing. I never played baseball before, and they gave me the bat, and the balls just whizzed by me. And so I thought. <laughs> I thought, hey, this is not no fun. That's not my game. And so I climbed over the school fence. It was a pretty high fence. And they yelled at me, hey, you're crazy. Hey, you crazy crowd. Uh, There are snakes there and and there are poisonous plants, poison ivy. And I realized something that um, generally American culture divides the world into um wilderness and civilization Mm -hmm. and the whole pioneer times were the progress of civilization against wilderness and Back then it was seen that way. The Indians were considered wild and irrational uh, at that time, you know. Yes. It has changed in the meantime. And uh, yeah, and the wilderness had to be developed and cultivated, for example. Hmm. And uh, the world was divided into very Calvinistic, good and bad. Sinners and saved, uh, blacks and whites. It was uh, back mm-hmm. then. The uh, uh, even Ohio was segregated, and I was when I went to school. The first um, it was the first class that was integrated, and uh, oh really? Mm-hmm. The, yeah, and the very first time there were separate schools, and mm-hmm. uh, the uh, um, yeah the black kids had to sit in back. And me, as a crowd, had to sit back with the blacks and uh, the, uh, yeah, the better uh, kids, uh, Anglo-Saxon, blah, blah, they uh, sat in front. And uh, so I befriended, I befriended mainly the uh, black people and in front of me was a, a girl Uh, She looked, because in Europe at that time, there were no uh, black or colored people at all. Mm. She looked like a chocolate. Uh, She was made of chocolate and her eyes were so beautiful, white and her teeth were white. And she turned around and smiled at me all the time and gave me candies in Europe. uh, Well, candies maybe at Christmas or at Easter, but it wasn't common. And uh, so I befriended them. And some of the kids in, uh, you know, in, in uh, when school pause, what do you call that? Um, yeah, they, uh, did the break, the school break. Yeah, the school um, break. Mm-hmm. Uh, the white kids surrounded me, and uh, they said, "Hey, you damn crowd, we're going to beat the shit out of you." And um, then the brother of this girl who had flunked. About three, maybe four times, he was already real big, and he came and said, "Stay away from my friend." And uh, so they they didn't beat me up. And then he took me to the uh, to the black section of town, uh, where back then whites wouldn't go at all. Uh, to a yeah, to a gymnasium uh, with a real boxing ring. And we had ra- real uh, gloves, and he taught me how to how to fight. Okay, I mean, defend yourself. Those so some of the, yeah. How to, yeah, those are some yeah. of the experiences one had. And then mm-hmm. uh, my teacher, a uh, nice lady, she said uh, she wanted to show me beautiful Ohio. And uh, we'd drive through the countryside, she said. What she meant to do was to tell me that blacks are, um, sure, they're humans and they're good at entertainment and sports, but they're not like us and you oughtn't uh, spend your time with them. Really? That was the early 50s, right? Yeah, that was uh, 54, in the fall mm-hmm. of 54, right. Mm-hmm. And those those were, those were some of the things I, I experienced, but I really didn't get into that much into, uh, into yeah, social life with the others. Uh, in my free time, uh, we played on a golf course and driving range. And uh, the kids there, they had an old Jeep. They, they could were allowed to drive it because it was a private property, huge area with a forest. And they had BB guns and, you know, they played either cowboy and Indian's and I was usually the Indian.
1: You had a bad and guy, of course. Because I, <laughs> I had longer hair. Yeah,
2: already. Okay. I, okay. I had to get yeah. I had to get shot, but mm. I didn't mind, you know. I was just fun yeah. for me also yeah. what I yeah. get shot. Or um Or or we had to play war and I had to play uh, German. uh, I mean, those those are the things. And I didn't get into sports like I should have. And like I said, with a baseball, I climbed over the fence and realized I had a realm of my own. Mm -hmm. I had a realm of my own, all these trees, and I got to know the uh, plants. I asked my teachers what 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 are these plants? And they said, "Well, they're not important." That's uh, uh, I thought. Well, that's biology. You should know the plants or the names. And no, no, they're just weeds and scrubs. You know, forget it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So uh, I was basically not well uh, integrated, and uh, but I wanted to know what these plants are because I always had a penchant for uh, plants. So I worked in a steel mill as a um, steel mill where they were. Uh, making axles for ford motor company i worked like a son of a gun in order to save enough money to study and then the botanical studies were uh, very disappointing and uh, so i quit that i couldn't i had never slept in a huge cement dormitory uh, 50 k. Uh, students per, uh, so only male, mm-hmm. back then male and females could not cohabit together. Uh, 50 per, um, per
1: room or per, per dormitory uh, level.
2: Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, three in a room and I mm-hmm. couldn't sleep there. So I went out and slept outside. Uh, there's a woods near the... Campus, Iota River flew there, uh, flew by there, flew flowed by there, and uh, yeah, and until winter started and it was too cold. So you see, I was not really that well integrated. Yeah. But what happened is, I got sucked into this academic thing after a while, and uh, I kind of lost my contact to nature, and that came uh, back. Uh, sometime later then
1: but it must have been something that called you already at that time because um, uh, because you say you lost it. I understand what you mean by the by the official way of of the mainstream life that you led right but but um, how did you find it again? I mean there must have been something in you that that attracted you so strongly that it drove you back. no?
2: Yeah, always. I think, uh, I mean, I can become a little metaphysical here. Uh, (laughs) I think it is, uh, I think I've spent uh, quite a bit of time in India. -hmm. Uh, Two years and then other visits. And I came to realize that it is very possible that uh, we come again into life. I mean, there's such a thing as rebirth. And, and what we, uh, when we come back, we bring our old karma with Mm -hmm. us. It doesn't stop. You know, certain knowledge
1: that you attained there, right?
2: Certain knowledge, certain tendencies, uh, and uh, that makes uh, the purpose of this life now is the old karma, things that we have to say, uh, to make up things to better stuff that we own uh, other people and so on, and that tells us the old karma gives us the that which we are supposed to be doing in this life that's what i uh mm-hmm. and uh, we come in back into life. Um, and we are gifted. We can. We know that in our own culture, also, that uh, we come from the. I mean, this is all metaphysical. Come from the highest level, from the archetypes of. Uh, they located it in the Renaissance in the uh, fix in in the realm of the fixed stars, and yeah. then we come down the planetary uh, the planetary steps uh, and first, we come from the fixed stars and go through the gate of saturn and then we come closer and come to jupiter and then mars and then we go to the door of the sun and go venus venus and mercury and then uh, uh, the moon and then we are fully incarnated that it mm-hmm. takes that to incarnate. and each of the planets so the renaissance idea each of the planets uh, give us gifts that we need for our life, hmm. so we can do the karma, the dharma, maybe uh, that we are supposed to do. Yeah. And uh, most of us uh, don't remember that, and we and the gifts that we have in us lay uh, fallow. And uh, well. And then one of the tasks is for us to find what we really have to do and what we want Mm -hmm. to do in life. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it's just kind of we have jobs and we we never have a real calling then. And uh, so in the modern times, much of the youth spends the time just searching for why am I here? What's the purpose of it all? But there is a purpose based on old karma. So... This is what uh, how I explain my uh, connection to the plants. Mm-hmm. It is so deep. It goes beyond the uh, yeah the the impo- inputs or of this life.
1: Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I, May I ask you something? Just a little intermediate question before we come back to your personal calling. You just mentioned the youth today and how they have difficulty to find their way. Do you think that modern times as we live them nowadays make it more difficult to the young people to find that calling or Is it just because they don't look for it enough? What, in your opinion is that? Is that exterior to the person or interior to the person that difficulty?
2: Uh, I think it is uh, that we are misguided very often. In in olden days, even in the Middle Ages, when you had an agrarian society, uh, there was such a thing as a family or a group, um, karma or dharma, mm. so that a kid who was born as a son of a, or daughter of a miller would become a miller and a farmer, would, uh, a peasant would become a peasant and so on but these days uh, that is not so and we have so many um, voices speaking and so many distractions and the distractions it begins with the uh, already with, uh, with kindergarten and nowadays with uh, yeah the electronic media that we have and mm. I mean when you think 12 years of indoctrination, that is pretty heavy to get out of there and find, uh, really find your true way. Certainly. And often it, and I think that's one of the reasons why young people often uh, go for some kind of uh, drug experiences too. Attest their limits to find out. Hey, where am I? What am I doing? Yeah, and that's uh, and in traditional societies that is possible. That is, uh, those are initiation rites. And traditionally, in many societies in Africa, Asia, and even here in Europe, it used to be that uh, the boys, when they were just before. Just coming into puberty, mm-hmm. were separated from uh, from their mothers, so to say, yeah, and uh, in, go into the woods, often traumatized, uh, and then the elders would uh, teach them and uh, help them find a way, um, and. Uh, we don't uh, we don't really have that sometimes mm. for a while it was um uh the military i remember in ohio in the mm-hmm. 50s you became a man after you'd been in the military right. and basically that's when you're capable of marrying and having a family but all that is uh, has kind of disappeared and so people have a hard time uh, have a uh, or young people have a hard time finding their way, and also traditional roles have gone away. I'm not uh, uh, saying that that was better, uh, uh, but it was different, and it is mm-hmm. not easy for young people. It's very and, these days. Yeah. It's very easy to be led on to a kind of a, a false path. Uh,
1: yeah, well, initiation, the word says it itself. It's the beginning of something. So and yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and and that's that's maybe what's missing. You just mentioned then well the, the drug scene, etc, which of course is often misleading. The time that you spent as a young man, so to speak in, in the US yeah. was of course especially there at the time, um, a time when the psychedelic 60s, etc right. that was a very strong moment. Um, did you how, do, how was your experience with that?
2: Well, the whole time—that's uh, what I've, I'm talking about in that book, far out in America—was basically an in- initiation process. Because mm-hmm. I, I was, uh, you know, separated from the uh, yeah, the traditional Midwestern German way of thinking. Uh, it already started with uh, religion. Yeah, I was, you know, in the Christian church and, uh, yeah, I, I believed everything. And then uh, you get a psychology professor who says, well, um, Jesus uh, was a faggot and all his, uh, uh, his disciples were that. And man, that's a shock. And then on Good Friday, well, Uh, You you had classes. Uh, It was not a day of uh, meditating or whatever. Mm -hmm. And on that day, we had to dissect frogs in a biology class. And I love these little frogs. And I I couldn't do it. And and that on Good Friday, you know, it's like Mm -hmm. actually Mm -hmm. the suffering of Christ in the form of a little frog. Uh, And uh, And you know, just kind of blown open and blown away. And so I had a, this all karmic. I think I had a very good friend. Uh he came from Cleveland and he um he he had a friend who had gone to Harvard. Uh mm-hmm. study psychology by a certain professor named uh, Timothy Leary. Oh <laughs> yeah, yeah, and he sent uh he sent a little a letter and he said, we're doing fantastic psychological experiments. And um, here is a little powder. It was probably, it was LSD in, in uh, milk sugar. I guess. And put it in your coffee or your drink and, uh, and write us what happened. Well, I saw the letter, I, I read it, and I took this powder and went off to my classes. <laughs> it was an uh, English literature class. And there, um, yeah, and and something strange started happening. While waiting for the class to begin, uh, I noticed people were just talking and pass just to pass time it had no meaning the words just became like drunk I mean uh, out out cans of Coca-Cola or something you know Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and uh, then the bell rang, and uh, the guy I'd been standing next says, come on, our class starts. And I said, well, I'm not a Pavlovian dog who's going to jump when the bell rings. <laughs> he didn't understand <laughs> what I was saying. <laughs> and, uh, so I went outside and met this uh, hillbilly girl that I had befriended, as uh, sort a of wild young thing, and she says, oh, there's some European movies uh, right here in uh, in the university hall. Yeah, it was a movie with Alain Delon, a French movie, and what was there were typical intellectuals, you know, thick glasses and beards and stuff, Those the artsy, craftsy types, and I went in and it really started hitting me, and I saw, on one hand, I saw just a display of light, on a screen
1: That's on another still is uh, coming yeah, through you yeah it was right. coming yeah, yeah, through right yeah, and yeah.
2: then on a, at the same time it was actual consciousness expansion mm-hmm. at the same time i could see On the screen, how the actors, uh, yeah, were trying more or less successfully to mimic human behavior. And then I saw the level on which the, uh, uh, yeah, the plot went where everybody was stuck on. And uh, yeah, when there's sad scenes, you hurt people. Yeah, and it maybe even getting a his, uh, his tear rolling down the eye, the cheek, and so on. And um, yeah, it was this multifaceted. I could tell Alan DeLong, yeah, he had a hangover while he was playing some of the scenes, and he had smoked too many cigarettes. At the same time, I could sense it was still uh, late uh, February, uh, the cold wind it was stopped by the building, but the essence went through the uh, walls. And it was such a fantastic experience. And then suddenly the light went on and the screen went silent. And I thought, wow. And my girlfriend said, uh, come on, what's the matter with you? Why are you sitting there? I I didn't want any fight with her. So I did. I should have kept sitting there in kind of entrance. I went out with her. Uh, cold, uh, February wind. I sat down on a sidewalk and, um, uh I realized that I was beyond time in something you call eternity, mm. and uh, that time is a fiction. And I told people passing by, "Time has stopped. Isn't it wonderful? Time is not real." <laughs> a crazy sitting on a cold sidewalk, <laughs> and uh, and a professor whose class I had uh, skipped. He came uh he, he happened to go by and saw me and he says, are you all right? I says, wonderful. I was like in a Buddha state. <laughs> yeah, a few days later, he wrote me a letter saying, I don't know what problems you have, but stay at the university because you have a lot to give. And um, and then. As I sat there, I felt my soul was way up in the sky, and a voice said, Now you have seen a mystery, and now you can come down back to earth. And I had never had such an experience. There was no mm-hmm. psychedelic culture at the time. Sure. Nobody knew what LSD was. It or was. Anything. Yeah. yeah. And um, it was uh, yet yeah, months later, then we, uh, my best friend in October, I ordered some more of this magic stuff, and it uh, it really helped expand the soul. And I'm glad that was before there was an LSE culture, before there were experts and psychologists and uh, pre- and pastors and sociologists who would explain the experience and already bring it back and guide it. Yeah, yeah, uh, and yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. And, and and narrow the possibility by it. and narrow it even. Psychedelic rock, which mm. is really wonderful, yeah. uh, narrows the experience, and mm-hmm. so I think, um, in that way, LSD as a substance, a, a, a substance of mystery, uh, is gone. It was no, only at a certain time that it opened doors. So, I mean, you know, if you're stupid and you take LSD, you're not going to be any smarter. Yeah, sure. Or if you're a criminal, you're not going to be suddenly a good guy. I mean, yeah. it's it's that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Well, a lot part of smarter
1: Yeah. Is that that kind of explanation that you give for that experience? Is that also true for other types of you can call them mystical, mythical or, or uh, Mind-expanding experiences um, that at the moment where you start explaining them too much, that they narrow down and you can't exactly. Them.
2: Yeah, I think that is so. Mm. Even when coffee appeared in the uh, uh, early days of enlightenment, you know the the ancient regime, the kings and uh, and yeah princes and so on. Well, they were on alcohol, wine and common people on beer and milk and so on hmm. and coffee uh, created a mental revolution and people uh, just a cup of coffee took on psychedelic dimensions and only in that way is uh, our uh, Johann Sebastian Bach's cantatas uh, to be explained he was in in coffee yeah, and Ludwig von Beethoven had the first essay espresso machine really Uh, yeah and he counted uh, the beans coffee beans per uh, cup and I was I I think it was 66 he counted exactly that and then he got into this creative rush Nowadays, well, we just, most people just drink coffee
1: and it doesn't well, do that much. There is the famous coffee cantata, Bach, actually. But right, right. I didn't see, I mean, I'm a musician professionally, but I've never seen the background to that. It's,
2: That's what it is. He is, yeah, at yeah. the time, you could express uh, your art mainly in the uh, confines of what the church allowed. So it's mostly uh by bach it was that's also the uh, influence of coffee by bach it was the love of the soul uh to Jesus and to God, they were lovers. And it was a different kind of uh, uh, Christian religion because of coffee. And the only other thing besides religious uh, subjects, uh, he uh, praised coffee. Oh, how sweet coffee is. It's sweeter than a thousand kisses. If you love me, give me a maca coffee.
1: Okay, let's stop here for a moment, because you just heard that Wolf, he really likes coffee. And he was mentioning that because of this coffee cantata by Johann Sebastian Bach. Well, I told you, the music this week is very eclectic, very diverse. Now we're going to hear Johann Sebastian Bach. And, well, we will hear, of course, that little aria from that cantata, the coffee cantata, it is called, where this young woman sings all her love for coffee, which is stronger than anything she desires. Well, until, well, but that's part of the later part of the cantata. We only hear the aria with the coffee topic. After that, we'll return to Wolf and continue our discussion with Wolfseeder Storl on his life in the americas on ethnobotanics etc etc very interesting topics and um, at the end we at the end of the interview we hear a third piece of music third piece of music which is called the white feather which is well it's not um, it's inspired by north american native music but it's of course not it's uh, the typical kind of revival music that we often hear the a very nice one the Weiss Feather, after which I will return with announcements for next week's episode. So stay tuned now. Before we return to Wolf Dieter Storl, we're going to hear the excerpt from the Coffee Cantata, that great aria about coffee. And afterwards, the White Feather, and we'll close with my announcements. Enjoy. <laughs> Well, that story of the coffee brings us of course, back to to well ethnobotanics because right, because right. i mean it 's a plant in the end, right, right. Um, so um, tell us you said you had you felt that special relationship to the world of nature, the plants, the trees, etc, which goes beyond what you can explain, probably even but um, how did you from that become first a professional? ethnobotanics and what exactly would you name what would how would you describe ethnobotanics it's a term maybe that needs a bit of explanation right ethno
2: means uh, people uh, and botanic is uh, plants uh, what it is is i was uh, after the disappointment with botany and i'm glad i quit it because i would have cut me off put a barrier between me and the um, the essentials of a plant Mm -hmm. And uh, so I went into, eventually, into anthropology, which is, uh, yeah, uh, anthropology is ethnography, uh, prehistory, linguistics, and anything that has to do. (laughs) That was still North America, right? That was uh, that was in North America where I discovered uh, anthropology. Yes, because and is
1: it true that anthropology is also in a different way defined in North America than than in, in as a yeah. study than in Europe? I think it is. It is right.
2: anthropo- mm-hmm. It is called anthropology, and it includes all these other facets. Uh, yeah, even archaeology yeah, and yeah, so on. Yeah, yeah. Whereas yeah. in Europe, it is uh, separated. You're, right. You don't, right. You have physical anthropology. You have primatology, you have ethnography, you have uh, okay. linguistics, and so on, yeah. separate. But in America, it uh, you have kind of like an overview.
1: Yeah. Yes, A-
2: and I noticed with most of the uh, ethnographic reports, uh, they were very. Very good at uh, social relations uh, fam- familiar relations, social structure uh, cooking or and hunting techniques, and so on, but very very few uh, there was very little mention of plants and so I was interested in that how does a culture uh, how does it deal with the plants and it is in most Anthropologists are not botanists, so they ignored that. Mm-hmm. it is just like ethnomusicology most are not into most are not into music or have no training at all mm. but later on when i was at the university of vienna i realized there was a whole department of music ethno uh, ethnology so, yeah yeah exactly mm-hmm. and uh, so it, and if you want to know about uh, different kinds of cooking and so on well uh, french uh, anthropology, uh, starting with uh, Claude Levi Strauss, is uh, is excellent when you want to hear about how people cook and how they go along with food.
1: Funny, yeah, yeah. yeah it's, uh,
2: that too is is uh, yeah, each cultural its,
1: differences, its sure, focus, yeah, yeah. yeah, and yeah,
2: yeah, uh, German yeah. and Austrian uh, anthropology is very open to uh, music, for example, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I started becoming ever more interested in uh, how a society uh, relates to plants, what plants mean in a society. And uh, all that was, you know, that, that was not uh, common in this study, and I went into that, I, I got Acquainted with and uh, so sort of personal uh, friendships with the Cheyenne Indians, and I was a good friend of a Cheyenne medicine man, a very well-known good medicine man, uh, Bill Tallbull was his name, and he was his um, uh, life purpose was uh, to be an um, ambassador to the green folk, to the plants. Okay, and, and he got that. Uh, every young person in most American Indian cultures, uh, f- oh, they go in their youth uh, into uh, on vision
1: quest. Yeah, wh- whether like, the initiation, basically, also right. It is right? basically the initiation, and yeah.
2: you know, you'd sit there four days minimum in in some cultures the Chippewa, it's uh, maybe 7 days but 4 days and you don't you don't eat you don't have a fire you sit in the wilderness um you don't uh, i mean you you hardly drink anything at all and uh, yeah we would say from an external point of view well as glucose deficiency in a brain and you start hallucinating mm-hmm. but the thing is the, the soul leaves uh leaves a body confines and comes into contact with uh, uh the beings in nature surrounding mm-hmm. and uh while he was sitting there a a uh, coyote appeared. And uh, you can just see coyotes, Caesars, uh, animals, uh, coyotes, dogs, and so on. They can sense uh, the brain vibrations or the vibrations mm-hmm. of the people. And he was in a, probably in a kind of meditative, I think it's alpha state. Mm-hmm. And so he came by and he started communi- communicating. On this other level, the... Uh, Humans and animals can uh, communicate, can talk to each other. And the uh, coyote said to him, uh, You come from the dog soldiers, but you're not uh, going to be a warrior and you're not going to be a hunter. You're purpose in life is to be a an ambassador uh, for the plants. And right. so he became the plant expert of the Cheyenne and uh, the uh, master of healing herbs. Mm-hmm. And it's on that level I met him, or on that level we became very good friends. And for a year and a half, I uh, not all the time, but like every weekend, we'd go into the wilderness and we'd meditate on into plants and we opened ourselves to the spirits. And uh, I noticed while I started botanizing, uh, counting the uh, stamens and uh, and uh, leaves and so on. And of the plant, he just kind of looked at me. Hey, what's that crazy way, this white man doing? And I noticed he talked with the plants. And there are some plants he did not talk with. They were not friends of the Cheyenne, as he said. Okay. And uh, so it took me a long time to... realized what he was doing to, uh, how would you say, to uh, connect, to clink into his way of seeing the world. (laughs) And uh, it was not just, it was more than thinking, it was just opening your being. Right. And this is, uh, and this is what uh, one of the wonderful things he taught me. He taught me to see the plants as very powerful, in his words, magical beings who incarnate physically and are alive. But their soul and their spirit is around them. They are not in soul, they are surrounded by soul. And when their soul, when their specific soul, uh, group soul, that is, uh, touches, The physical body, then a great metamorphosis happens. uh, The plants start to flower and they get. Soul qualities they get colors which speak to our souls right. and to the souls of bees and other animals, and they get fragrance, they start mm. smelling good, which works very deep into our uh, yeah into our feelings and into our souls, and their whole metabolism basically changes and becomes a little more animal like The plant is where, the, yeah. where the, the flower is where the plant touches the sphere of ensoulment or astrality as one would say here exactly and and that is the the bridge between the two and all that made sense Uh, later on i went i quit uh, university and uh, i was in vienna and i met i stumbled upon a community in Switzerland that was a biodynamic
1: community. I, uh, I was going to say because your terminology you just used with the uh, was a, 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 a bit uh, Rudolf Steiner's terminology. Right that, right. right, right. Yeah. That
2: was uh, for, for me that was very important. I went to this biodynamics and uh, suddenly there was Rudolf Steiner whom I've known in the literature as yeah, some cuckoo believes in Atlantis or in something. And then I noticed the biodynamics, they're really in touch with the soil and with the plants and the animals. And they had a special vocabulary that did not limit it like the uh, the official science to what is well, what you can weigh and what you can analyze. But it takes in a non-physical dimension. And I found that is very similar to what the Indians, uh, I I mean, the American uh, Indians, uh, Native people there uh, knew. And Steiner gave me, um, or the work with biodynamics, gave me a vocabulary because otherwise I did not have a vocabulary. It was like... in school back in uh, high school and junior high uh, nobody could tell me what the plants were like and then later on when you know the names you kind of got a yeah you got a grip on on yeah. words are very uh, important and i'm very thankful to steiner for that it's like a, a professional terminology in a way for that for that field right right right, right. for mm-hmm. that uh, which is uh, there but not uh, physical physically tangible yeah it's just like words you know they they are they're not material things that are passing between us right now yeah. it's a, yeah. it's a sort
1: of uh, really talking sort of a spiritual uh, astral and astral i think yeah, that's what right, yeah. I would call it yes and mm-hmm. um, do you may, may I go a little bit back to the to the north american the indian the the the, the medicine man and the other uh, probably native Americans that you met, um, um, that of course makes me think about shamanism. And you mentioned right. that very briefly in the very beginning when you crawled, like the, uh, when you brought oh, the experience yeah. to your aunt, um, but shamanism, I know one of in one of your books, you, you also relate to Celtic shamanism and to, to Nordic shamanism. Of course, one says the origin of shamanism is in the far east in siberia or wherever but um that's all theories what were your or did you make any personal experiences with that world and what's for view on that also relation in relation to animals and plants
2: yeah i mean i had these experiences uh as a school kid, because I spent most of the time in the woods. And I realized when I went to college uh, that they had no understanding of plants and animals. They had them in laboratories, and I thought it was just terrible what they did to them. And uh, the um, agricultural uh, plots, for, for uh, experimental plots they had with plants. And I could see these plants were very unhappy. And I couldn't tell my professors that plants can be unhappy. Well, they have yeah. no brains, they have no soul. How can you say mm-hmm. that? Because, But uh, they were unhappy. And uh, I think all of us have basically um, shamanic uh, abilities. Uh, every one of us, but they are overlaid they are covered by all kinds of the ideas we have by the programs we take in every day through television by the novels we read that's like uh, basically trash and it prohibits us from uh really communicating and mm-hmm. it, if i can say something more about shamanism um uh,
0: Please, yes. Yes. Uh,
2: Yeah, officially, uh, shamanism is uh, from the Far far East. But we know enough that there was a universal uh, paleolithic culture stretching from Western Europe all the way through Asia into the Himalayas, Mongolia, Siberia into the new world, because the Native Americans came from Eastern Asia, mainly from the area around Baikal, which is the center of shamanism, uh, where you find these uh, large um, drums, round drums, and uh, uh, similar shamanic customs and initiations and so forth. So there, there is a universal basis. For shamanism, mm-hmm. in other on other continents, uh, uh, in Australia or in Africa, uh, some anthropologists say, "Well, they don't really have shamanism. Yes, they have. Uh, they have their way, often with shamanic aspects to communicate with the non-incorporate uh, beings, uh, mm-hmm. spirits, and so on." So, uh, talk about. European shamanism. They always, one always hears about Celtic shamanism. Well, basically more important was uh, were the Druids who had shamanic abilities but uh, were uh, ritual leaders and keepers of the Tradition, the oral tradition and uh, masters of magic. More shamanic were the uh, Germanic tribes and the Slavic tribes. Mm -hmm. Uh, Germanic tribes had a, uh, their main god was like the Vikings and the Anglo-Saxons and the Frisians and so on. Their main god was um, a shaman god. God. Mm-hmm. and that was uh, in, in nordic odin in anglo-saxon right. woden mm-hmm. in uh in german wodan mm-hmm. and so on and the thing is he was one who oh, who did not uh, let any border stop him he was a transgressor he could go to the world of the dead he could travel on his eight-legged white horse white is a uh, color of spirits but eight legs what is that that is actually the um is the ones who carry the beer uh, the the pallbearers the ones that ah okay, okay. carry the dead you know um mm-hmm. and When the corpse lies there uh, and is brought uh, to its last rest, there are, it's like they're riding a a horse with uh, eight
1: legs. Eight legs. Mm -hmm.
2: And it is in the, I think it's in the Eddas, uh, it talks about Sleipnir, the slow sliding
1: horse. Sleipnir, yeah. uh, yeah, yeah.
2: That um, it talks about it, that Odin lay there, as though he were dead. He's on shamanic travels. Travel and trance, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm trance. And then Mm -hmm. in the spirit world he could, which is true of all shamans, he could take on the form of a bear, a wolf, a raven, an eagle, uh, a snake. He uh, saved the... uh, Uh, Here the famous brew of initiation uh, uh, in the form of a snake, he went into the castle of these demons or giants, and he seduced the daughter of the... uh, Changed himself into a beautiful young man, yeah, and yeah, they yeah. spent three days in utter love ecstasy. And she says, "Oh, I was so... What can I do for you?" He says, "Let me have one swig, just one swallow, of uh, of this magical brew, pru- uh, And she says, "Oh no, my father would be very mad." He says, "You are just one swallow," and then he, uh, she granted him that, and. He took the whole uh, uh, elixir, ambrosia, into himself and changed into an eagle and flew away. And that's how the gods got the uh, drink of inspiration and not the demons. I mean,
1: right, are, right. That reminds a bit of Zeus, uh, Zeus uh, almost, right? Who also yeah, changed well, into animal bodies and.
2: Um, of course, yeah. uh, the uh, that's uh, another Indo-European god. Zeus, see, is uh, the word comes from De, uh, deus, mm-hmm. is god, mm-hmm. and deus Peter is Jupiter. I mean, they all have. Yeah. Um, I I mean, these have uh, Indo-European roots, these gods, but especially... Odin is a shaman's god, mm-hmm, and he mm-hmm. is—he has all the qualities of a shaman. He is shape-shifting and right. tricky, and the common people liked Thor or Thor, Thunar in English and yeah, Donar yeah. in German better yeah. because he was steady. He was like a good, a strong, you could trust his word, but you couldn't trust the word of,
1: uh, of Odin. Odin. No, uh, sure, yeah, no, yeah, sure right. not, sure not. Have you personally, if I may ask, have you personally made shamanistic experiences in shamanistic travel and and uh, and and trance. Have you uh, participated? Uh, Yeah,
2: I have. uh, I've had these experiences and especially in in nature uh, when i walked with uh, walked around in the rocky mountains and then later on as a gardener in biodynamic gardener you'd get up with the sun in the summer at 4:30 uh, and you'd be in like in touch with nature with the plants and so on all day long. And often when full moon came, uh, we made gardeners and friends made a fire. And, um, and it was as if the spirits got into us. And so I, and, and we danced like one couldn't really normally dance, because not what you learn in dance school or something. And they were, uh, and, and we got into a state, of ecstasy, where you could... Where you could feel and at certain times practically see the spirits. For me, that mm-hmm. was biodynamic. That was a di- dynamic side. Right. Th- the village priest thought it was revi- uh, revival of heathenism, really? uh, and yeah. he was very afraid, and he tried to stop that. And <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it uh, uh, it's
1: it's a kind of an animist approach, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. Animist in the, in a sense. Uh, that's a early anthropological term uh, they would have liked to use uh, Edward Taylor he was a famous British anthropologist mm. and he, uh, he said yeah the primitive people they believe in spirits and everything has life and has spirit he wanted to call it spiritualism but there was already a cult called yeah. spiritualist so he called it animism from anima, right. soul mm. and uh, what he said primitive mentality only. Uh, sees everything as everything being ensouled, everything having a soul and can be spoken to. Ha! How primitive, le, uh, le mentalité primitive. Hein? Yes, exactly. And, uh, and then, in with the idea of progress, uh, then came the state of barbarians who had where not everything was alive, but they had multitudes of gods, polytheists. But the really modern enlightened people have only one God, monotheism.
1: Uh, uh, so uh, they can kill each other for the one God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's about it. <laughs> I want to come back to that sentence you said in the beginning when you left baseball, so to speak, because you found out, you said that people divide the world into the good Positive, uh, developed part and the natural part, which is bad. It's just right. to say it very right. bluntly, right. 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 Um, how do you see that um, in twenty twenty two? I mean, not you personally. I think you. I think I know what uh, what you think. Yeah, I hope. I, but um, how do you see the world? Has that point of view changed? Is it?
2: Yeah, I don't think, unfortunately not. When you look at current politics, uh, I think, yeah, attempts are being made, but much of that is mental because most people, they've gone through years of schooling and, uh, and, yeah, and they're stuck on the uh, mass media, and they get uh, programmed in a certain way. Uh, and there's a lot of and and uh, it is what they're thinking or what what they are feeling is uh, is basically an intellectual idea. It doesn't come mm-hmm. so
1: much from the heart or from the guts. Well, and from the from the s- spirit in the sense of Geist, from Earth, right, yeah, yeah 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 um and what do you i mean a young person who who reads your books and who who tries to follow a path that could do good for his own development and then for nature, what would you counsel somebody in 2022 who came up to you and say, well, Mr. Stroll, uh, tell me, I would like to improve. How can I do that?
2: I get that all the time. And what I tell them is, uh, and that's part of the Central European tradition of Goethe and Schiller, who had another approach to nature. And I was... Mm -hmm. uh, uh, viewing, uh, being in nature. How would you say that?
1: Uh, it's a it's romantic not this, view, right? Yeah, a romantic
2: yeah. view. Yeah. It's not this dividing. And what I tell them in a world with so much virtual reality and, and all kinds of things that uh, will tie you mentally, uh, the best thing is to go back to the source. Go to nature, walk barefoot, and you'll just defeat uh, the souls. I don't know how many nerve endings they communicate with and receive information from the earth. It's real different walking on grass than walking on on, uh, mud or whatever, or on cement. And the earth speaks to you. And then take time. Uh, very consciously take time in the rush of things. Just stop and look at that little flower that's growing there in a crack in the wall or as a weed. And stop and look at it. Look at Go into it. Not just you say, oh, well, that's a dandelion. I know it. You have to, don't have to look at it anymore. Realize... Uh, you've never seen this dandelion before. It's a magic moment. So one, one time, soon a dandelion will be gone and so on. And smell it. Use all your senses. Use your smell. Mm. At the same time, use your ears. What birds are singing? And, uh, and then go into this moment that is a door to... Um, timeless eternity and this is what refreshes our soul and gives it strength and then uh then of course you know you can't constantly do that uh, forever because you'll end up in a loony bin Uh, (laughs) but but you have this i call it a zen moment like Mm -hmm. zen uh, meditation You, you fully connect and then you go back into the normal business of modern, uh, the rush of modern life. Or just uh, when you have an office job at lunchtime, take the time to look at a flower or just stand there and feel the sun. Feel the sun uh, on your face and on your hands. This gives you strength. And what I tell young people is always connect with these sources. That connects us with our ancient ancestors back into the pre-Stone Age. that is basically our home
1: yeah. yeah and how how do you do that also through the contact with nature and plants right, or is there right. uh, because
2: yeah. uh, because our way way back ancestors were had to be they wouldn't have survived had ever in constant contact I've seen that with Staubel and uh mm. the uh, Cheyenne they're constantly open they uh they're not very successful in schools except yeah some few uh but they sit there in a the school and they let the words go in one year and out the other and uh mm. they don't like to read Tobol could read. He was one of the very few. But they don't like to read because you're putting paper and ideas between you and the phenomenon. And for them, okay. the phenomenon is, uh, I mean, the direct appearance of nature is the most important. Hmm. And we're living hmm. in a world where I see that all the time with herbalists and so on. Uh, they've learned their herbalism mainly in books and in uh, in the internet, and uh, uh, and it stays pretty much in the, in the head. But uh, sh- yeah. I some sometimes I let my students just crawl crawl on the lawn or on the forest floor and sniff. I <laughs> tell them uh, take uh, you know do it like dogs not. <laughs> But yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. sniffing and yeah, 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 yeah. the olfactory nerves can relax and you can uh, mm-hmm. smell a lot more and you realize what a bouquet of, uh, of scents there are on the ground. Okay. How wonderful. Yeah, yeah, sure. See, yeah. a lawn smell just, of course if you're worried about your neighbor neighbors looking and seeing you crawl and sniffing in the lawn, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and, uh, and let them walk barefoot, and uh, so on. I mean, even in the city... It, it's connect. interesting
1: what you say, because, because those... Um, the, the, teachings or that way of, of doing things is something that magical schools, you know, when you yeah, yeah. teach magic in the in the classical way, also ask for in the beginning in order to get to know your surroundings. So you have to walk barefoot, you have to start to use all your senses, get them more used to what you do. And um, it, it is certainly very much related, right?
2: Right, right, right. Well, magic, uh, magical schools are like an extension or sophistication of
1: basic uh, shamanic uh, uh, Indeed. Uh, yeah. abilities. Yeah, exactly. With the same problem that at some level people read too much and don't practice enough.
2: Yeah, that's... Uh, uh, it depends on a motive. If it is to gain uh, power, uh, yeah, then you can get yourself out on a limb. I've basically avoided uh, these magical circles uh, mm-hmm. because I've seen uh, shortcomings, and and you yeah. don't really need it because nature, if you get into it, is magical anyway. Yeah, and uh, yeah. every every person's life can be uh, magical. Because like Ernst Jünger, he was a famous writer, said, uh, if you don't believe in miracles, you're not a realist.
1: <laughs> that's <laughs> a good one. Yes, that's a real good one. Right, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Well, Wolf, um, we are coming towards the end of our talk, I'm afraid. Um, this was fascinating. And thank you for all your all your. Input and all your knowledge and wisdom that you that you shared with us, um, we talked a little bit about America, but of course we want people also to get that book and read it because it's really fascinating. those many many. stories stories which are very meaningful in detail. So um, we couldn't even have talked about all of them. And um, but I'd like to ask you for a kind of a final word. Uh, we live, as you also mentioned, in a time that's a bit strange and a bit difficult at the moment. Um, and people are looking for meaning all over the place. Um, can you can you maybe give those a little bit of a of a good thinking on their way what they how they can look for the future in another way
2: yeah I think there is no uh, no schooling no system no ideology that can give you uh, basically can, can, can give you what you need uh, only yourself if you're centered in yourself then all the stuff is like the eye of a hurricane you can say uh, that can be our being in our microcosm or the North Star. All the other stars revolve around it. That's, that's of course, astronomers will say, well, that's total BS. <laughs> but for a 100,000 years, uh, humans and animals and we, uh, yeah, and the shamans have seen that. That's the only star that doesn't move. And it anchored us. Yeah, it anchors, <laughs> yeah. and we yeah. have this anchor in in us. Mm-hmm. And uh, this, uh, when we find that, then we can, uh, and that's very important for shamans. They have to be anchored. They have to be centered in themselves. Then they can go way, way out.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, other people, like uh, good church people, it is the church that gives them that gives has fences. Mm-hmm. beyond which you're not allowed to go. Uh, yeah, yeah and, can't and, fall
1: down by the edge. Yeah, yeah,
2: right, yeah. and uh, also um, that's why the church has defined people as sheep with a good shepherd who guides them through this life mm-hmm. to the other shore. Mm-hmm. Well, shamans are not into that. They are their own shepherd, they have to be centered if they're not centered and go way out there. They can go get lost in demonic dimensions, become themselves demonic and think they're wonderful Mm. or yeah, or in or they can basically lose themselves. You have to be centered.
1: That's the thing. Yeah. Yeah. So um, try to be centered. And uh, that's, I think, the message. Wolf, Stoll, Wolf, thank you so much. And um, well, good continuation. And uh, um, thanks for all that, what uh, you t- gave us here today.
2: Yeah, well, thank you for letting me speak. <laughs> because uh, what else uh, should I do in life okay, these Absolutely. days? Absolutely. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Continue. <laughs> thank you. Okay, thank you.
1: White Feather by a musician called Ah Ma. Hope I pronounced that properly. Um, the White Feather closed our episode for this week. Well, almost. And uh, because before we leave each other now, I want to thank first Wolf Dieter for having accepted to appear on my podcast. I was very pleased and honored to have him here on the show this week. And I have to thank all of you for listening and coming back each week. It's really great how many people are coming to us next week again, hopefully. And next week, um, it will be episode number 15 already of this, season 8. And Mary Kay Greer will be my guest. And we will talk a lot about the tarot, but also, and that was initially also one of the ideas why I got her on the show, about her book which is already 27 years old, believe it or not, on the women of the Golden Dawn. So we talk about women, occultism, about the Golden Dawn, and of course, when you talk to Mary Greer, we talk about the tarot. So for the time being, I hope you enjoyed this week's show, and uh, have a good week, have a nice week, have a safe week. Take care, stay tuned, hear you soon.